Jeff Costello. And I'm James Robertson, and this is Unbound, fiercely exploring issues that matter. All right, Jeff, tell me what's going on. Well, we have had an interesting conversation today with Anthony Kosh, yep. who's a uh, conservative political strategist. And um, it, was, it, was a, it, was, it was a really interesting one. It was a really enlightening one about kind of the inner workings of the Conservative Party and some of the different factions going on there and how we ended up with Aaron O'Toole. Um, Anthony was one of the kind of key people who was in the dump Andrew Shear camp and then went on to be a surrogate for Aaron O'Toole. He's not still working in the party. He's not still in a surrogate for Aaron O'Toole, but uh, he has got some interesting insights on how that happens and how Andrew, how Aaron is doing. Um, mm-hmm. And then we spent a lot of time talking about, oh, we spent a lot of time, I didn't expect this. We spent a lot of time talking about social conservatives and what that yep. means and how that fits into the party and how that, is that a broad enough coalition to attract voters and, and the ups and downs of that. So I've, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. He's, uh, he's outspoken. He's, he's a bit brash and uh, we need that, you know, there, he kind of fit into that mold of uh, the fearless aspect of our podcast. Um, and I hope to have more conversations with him in the future uh, because of that. Uh, what I do appreciate, you know, we did talk about the SoCon. We, we did, I think, riff off a little bit uh, based on a previous conversation with Ben Woodenfin about the redefinition of SoCon. Uh, or just expanding that concept within the conservative um, uh, philosophy, Canadian conservative philosophy. Um, but he talked a bit about extending beyond the base, which is that conversation we need to have. There was that yeah. kind of discussion. Okay, this, yeah, sure. The base gets this, this is, base, but, you know. How do you win votes? How do you win votes? We need How do you get people, how do you build, I mean, he talked about that, about movement building, about yeah. are we just picking policies out of a hat because they pull well? and hoping that it's attractive or are we actually kind of leading with some vision, putting real ideas forward and not caring where the pol- what the policy looks like to some extent if it's matching the vision. And speaking of Ben, he wrote an article, you know, totally coincidentally, he wrote, put out an article today in his, uh, in his The Dominion substack that really kind of was a, is a great bridge between the conversation we had with Ben and the conversation we have with Anthony today. So yeah. that was not at all planned, but if you haven't heard <laughs> nope. Ben's podcast, go back and listen to it. Rate it well, five stars. Hosted. Yeah, sorry, it's hosted. our podcast. He was on it. <laughs> Rate it five stars, then come back and listen to this one. Rate it five stars. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I'm getting I'm getting some good reviews. Uh, you know, some, some people have reached out. They really like that, that one podcast. <laughs> that's one of us getting good reviews so it must be nice over there yeah. uh but it's really all about ben they're like i, I really like that guy <laughs> like what are you saying so um if you haven't please follow him on twitter uh check out his Substack newsletter dominion uh he's got some uh well thought out in-depth uh articles there his one that he just put out on the definition or discussion of social conservatism or just conservatism and the connection to family is his uh, longest uh, or lengthiest newsletter. But he, he apologized saying it's been a while since he's written one. So he had a lot to, to write, uh, but very enjoyable, a lot to ponder, a lot to think about. So and yeah. I think thinking about the conversations we've had about both of them, I think there's a real, I'm getting the sense that there is some coalescing uh, a vision for the kind of center right around the ideas of the family 
And that's a way that they can tap into urban voters and younger voters. And I think that things, in some ways, if they take advantage of it, I think things are kind of lining up. I think there is a huge amount of pressure around the housing issue now in municipalities around- You think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it is hitting a bit of a boiling point with prices continuing to go up everywhere and it's just becoming totally out of reach for anybody under 40. And every year that goes by, it's another year of people who can't afford. Uh, so it's really not getting any better. I think that has to change. I think there's a real sense with COVID and everything about childcare. Um, you know, how do we make sure women stay in the work fa- workplace? How do we make- you know, our communities more livable. And again, that's couldn't be an easily be a conservative, like social conservative position to talk about the need for, you know, a real plan to get childcare and make it accessible for people uh, mm-hmm. to give them kind of that flexibility, keep them in the workforce, keep people productive and getting to live out their aspirations. Um, yeah, I so- agree. I, I, there was even, I think he mentioned uh, family, family zoning for municipalities. I'd like to explore that a bit more. I, I do follow municipal politics um, and families is one of those things that actually becomes pretty late, if ever, into the conversation. Uh, there's usually these really heady issues. Well, of, shadows yeah, first, right? You got to get, you gotta get through the shadow oh, zones. Those oppressive shadow zones. And, zones, and view cones view and cones. setbacks. <laughs> setbacks. I mean, come on, Jeff. Seriously. No, but it what would we do uh, in a city without setbacks? I mean, yeah, I think a lot of it's this weird thing of um, some of the councils, at least I'll speak within the lower mainland, are highly progressive. They're all about kind of the Green New Deal. Uh, and they have these really uh, lofty, some of it is, yeah, great. Uh, very, you know, <laughs> some of it's great, but it's sometimes really out. I don't want to say outside the bounds of municipal governance, like get inside your back, your box. I don't like that. But uh, what I find sometimes is it's, there tends to be a lack of discussion about the sports association, the soccer field, the playground. Um, it's even like, <sighs> Even bike lanes, a lot of times, bike lanes becomes into this ridiculous war uh, based on climate change against cars. And I mean, I can't just believe I just stepped into the bike bike lanes discussion. We, you, yeah, just, don't use those words here. I don't want to start down that path. You know, but it, it's it can be changed to like if if you talk more about like kids safely biking from point A to point B. I think it's a, actually a much stronger conversation because I live in an area of the community that I don't feel comfortable with my kids going on their bikes because the traffic's just too dangerous. Yep. Right. And, and so, yeah, if, let, let's have that bike lane discussion. I'm fully for it. If it's going to be about safely getting my kids from point A to point B or making, making neighborhoods comf- more livable. Like, yes, exactly. you know what I mean? Like when I was exactly. a kid, you know, used to bike all around the neighborhood and sure, yeah, there yeah, were some exactly. roads, but there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any bike infrastructure to speak of, but you know, I would love to have that for my kids. But the way that we're all having to stack and build neighborhoods now is, well, the city of Vancouver only lets you build housing of any density on a major road. So yeah. you kind of killing biking for kids just by doing that. Anyway, yeah. I, I'd actually love to find- Can I just find, ask you a question? Yeah. Were, were you cool enough or am I just way older than you? Did you have a hockey card in your- in I your, never played uh, hockey as a kid. But you, but you never had like the hockey cards and the spokes to make the cool sound while you're biking around? Be the badass in the neighborhood? No? No, I'm no. not one of those weirdos. Oh, right. All no, right. No, no, I no. guess that's- <laughs> No, this isn't like 1960s Huckleberry Finn shit. <laughs> Sandlot, but yeah, Sandlot. No. Yeah. So anyway, I, I actually would like to get somebody who has some knowledge about the city of Vancouver 
or, or, or municipal politics because it's a total disaster. I mean, housing is blocked here in Vancouver because the most left-wing councillor and the most right-wing councillor who are very left and quite right always agreed to block housing. It's like the left, the person on the left, Gene Swanson, loves to block it because there's never enough social housing or it's not subsidized enough or it doesn't meet yeah. um, the right kind of like market environment. And um, Colleen Hardwick likes to block it because any housing is an Im- is in her mind an, I- an imposition on existing housing. And, yeah. and I, I find that's a I great alliance really tired that makes of, for oh, yeah. absolutely nothing. It makes it yeah. no progress on nothing. And there's, there is a sitting underneath all of that. There is this seething anti-immigration aspect to it. And um, it, it drives me nuts. Right. And it's like, well, we, you know, I, I, I saw a on the housing again. You're talking about on the housing. Oh, oh yeah. On the housing, housing. We can't take more people. We can't take more. I've heard people. Yeah. Clearly and you know tell what that's that. been, you know, and I, t- to be honest, you know, five years ago, I think I would have bought into that a bit more. Um, but we've put the policies in place in BC. There's a speculation tax. There's a foreign buyers tax. There's all sorts of oh, stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't forget what I saw, but I saw a statistic that came out for 2020 purchases, and it was less than one percent. It was like it was like half a percent of purchases were done by a foreign buyer. So that that issue is not causing the problem. The problem is caused by, like very clearly, the problem is caused by just a total mismatch of supply and demand. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, and we cannot generate more supply and demand continues to increase because we have immigration and we have people who need to move to cities to, cause that tends to be where the jobs are nowadays. So and cheaper access to capital too. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, there's, interest, there's all yeah. sorts of things we can go into, for that. but uh, that's in a whole nother episode. Anyway, anyway I don't whole, want to detract that, that yeah. whole topic about housing, livable cities, communities, all that stuff that, and what we'll talk about, I think, with Anthony is that should fall under the umbrella of social conservatism. I agree. It's not just about LGBT stuff or abortion. It's about building the social fra- fabric of the country up so that people feel belonging and meaning in their communities where they I live. I agree. Yep. Totally. So, Love it. Okay. Shall we kick it off? So we will get into it with Anthony Kosh. All right. Let's, let's get after it. Okay, really excited about this one. We are speaking to Anthony Kosh. He is a political strategist, worked on Parliament Hill. He was a key member in the movement to oust Andrew Scheer and became a campaign surrogate for Aaron O'Toole during the leadership convention. Right now, he is the managing principal of AK Strategies. Welcome to Unbound, Anthony Kosh. Okay, welcome Anthony Kosh to Unbound. Um, had a little technical error. We were about five minutes, 10 minutes into some gold from Anthony and I realized I hadn't pressed the record button. So we're going to try this again and I'm hoping he's just going to repeat exactly <laughs> what he said, like a good, you know, backbench MP will do. Um, you're never uh, getting it back, Jeff. You're never getting it back. I'm never getting the button back. Okay. <laughs> Anthony, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell me about, uh, what you're working on and what is preoccupying your mind at the time. And I promise that we're recording this time. Fantastic. So uh, I'm born and raised Montrealer. I got involved in politics for the first time during the 2015 uh, federal election campaign, helping out my local conservative candidate. Then that's uh, summer 2016. So immediately following the election, I got my first job in politics. I worked as an intern in the opposition leader's office under Ronna Ambrose, who was the interim leader at the time. 
Then, uh, like we were talking about, I ended up on Maxime Bernier's now famous 2017 election <laughs> campaign. Yeah, in all, in all of its glory and subsequent shame, uh, <laughs> after he decided <laughs> to go down the pathway that, that he went down. And then um, from there, I ended up working in, in I did a stint in Shears OLO in the summer of 2018. And I did some government relations work for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, worked as a lobbyist in Toronto for a period of time, was a key member of the movement that got rid of Andrew Scheer as leader, and then ended up as a member of Aaron O'Toole's uh, leadership campaign team that ultimately won. So, you know, I finally picked a winner. <laughs> so we're That's going good. in the right direction. Yeah, and, and you game. know, knock on wood, there, time is, is still of the essence, I guess, in a sense, but uh, hopefully... <laughs> I don't think this guy is going to turn out to be some crazy fringe alt writer. We'll see, though. Fingers crossed. Maybe I don't know. I mean, it can always, yeah, it can always exactly. end up on Dave Rubin and uh, <laughs> and uh, having a really interesting conversation about how Maxine Bernier is going to be the next Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> yeah, good old Dave Rubin. Oh, <clears throat> so uh, we were interested. You know, we, I asked you about this before. We'll go through it again. But Aaron O'Toole, James, and I were really excited about the message she was putting out. That was very focused on kind of. Uh, changing the face of, I think, CPC politics and getting away from, uh, <clears throat> you know, the the way the conservatives looked at the the world and policy issues in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Um, and we were really excited that this was somebody who was going to think about, like, how do we bring unions into the fold? How do we bring, yep. you know, working class people in uh, to the conservative tent? And now that he's taken up residence in the official opposition, that seems to have totally faded away. And so why don't you walk me through again, what uh, we were talking about uh, and why that kind of takes place and, and what happens there on the communication side on the, in, you know, with some inside baseball. Yeah, so exactly. So during the leadership, I think that was one of the strong suits of, of O'Toole's campaign relative to other ones. The comms was fantastic. He was putting out these bite-sized sort of videos. Some of them are a little bit more long form, but uh, it was, you know, you had a topic of the day or there was some sort of rhetorical device that they wanted to put out on that particular topic. And they were fantastic. Well-produced, like beyond just the actual production value, the content was great. The scripting was fantastic. And uh, that's one of the reasons, like, you know, we were looking at the, if you look back, there was that whole discussion about the engagement during the leadership race. Aaron killed everybody, right? Mm. So it was really, really well done. And then me and you had discussed before we started recording as well, in the direct aftermath of that leadership, right as he sort of took over, that calm sort of continued. And like you said, you this talk about pr private sector unions in particular, and that they should vote conservative and, and this idea that free markets are not the end, but a means to an end. And that there are times where, you know, the most liberal sort of trade or the most liberal economic policy is not necessarily the most, the one that brings the most desirous outcome for everybody. And uh, that's very much this sort of line of thinking and trying to rethink what it means to be a conservative in 2021 in Canada, definitely took some inspiration from the UK Tories, okay? And you see this tension that sort of underlies Canadian conservatism. And I'm a big, here's my line on this, okay? If you look historically anyway, okay, in general, whenever Canadian conservatives more closely embody our British counterparts, we tend to do much better tend to perform better in elections, we tend to win elections more common. Whenever Canadian conservatism tends to morph into or act like a pale imitation of the Republican Party or of our American counterparts, we do much, much less good or much less well. I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, a large part of Canadian identity is based on a rejection of the United States and a rejection of Americanism. My own thoughts on that aside, I know I'm sure you and Ben uh, 
must have had a little bit of a conversation about that. He has a lot to say about that too. I'm talking about Ben Woodfin, of course, who was on this podcast yeah. either last week or the week before. So that's all sweet and dandy. And I, I was on board with that. Like you said, you guys were excited too. I think a lot of people were. And again, here's what happens in politics. I've seen it happen a couple of times, not to razz anyone. But once you actually get into OLO, once the leadership's completed, and it's important to note as well, when Aaron announced his candidacy for the leadership of the party, most people would have laughed. Most people did laugh. So this guy's got no chance. This was back when we thought, you know, Rana might run. Jean Charest was in the running. Pierre Polyev had already somewhat pseudo-announced his campaign. And then when Pierre really decides that he's not running, Aaron's campaign team makes the very smart decision to position him as the true blue candidate in the race. Great. And you have to go through some Hail Mary passes because Aaron O'Toole's name recognition and, and general uh, status or, you know, position within the party rank and file compared to a guy like Peter McKay wasn't there. So you had to throw up some lobs and hope some stuff landed and, and it did. And the <laughs> campaign did. ended up going very well, but now it's a different situation. So we're in OLO or, Aaron's team is in OLO. Aaron is in OLO. And uh, it's really hard to be an opposition leader right now, anywhere <laughs> in the developed world, just because by the very nature of the crisis that we're living, government gets about 50 opportunities a day to talk about anything and everything. And the opposition leader can't look too much like a negative Nancy, just constantly criticizing everything for the sake of criticizing everything. So it's a difficult situation in general, but I'll tell you this much, politically speaking. And this is, this is a reality that a lot of people face, which is the perks of office are great and people want to hold on to them for as long as they possibly can. That's not an inherently bad thing. This is the problem that I think, if I could describe the change in behavior based on what I know, it's that, uh, and this is not everybody, but there's definitely a faction within OLO that thinks this way, which is how do we make sure or how do we do the biggest guarantee that no matter the outcome of this election, Aaron is still leader at the other side of this thing. Mm. Okay. So here's the thing. And I don't know if, if you got either of you guys ever watched suits. I haven't been watching <laughs> years, but back when it was, so there's a great line at one point, Harvey's talking to some lawyer and he goes, that's the difference between you and me. I'm trying to win big and you're trying to lose small. Okay. And I think in this, in this case, right. There's this idea among many that and fairly or unfairly, rightly or wrongly, that Aaron has inherited a really crappy situation, which he has. This is a very difficult, like I said, it's a very difficult time to be an opposition leader, very difficult time uh, to try and run a campaign to become prime minister in the aftermath of a crisis. I mean, look, every government that's had an election, every incumbent government that's had an election in the midst of this pandemic has been returned with the majority government, right? Mm. Uh, there's, you can attribute that to any number of things, whether it's rally around the flag effect, any number of things. So we get it. So anybody who's honest with you right now and Aaron's entourage and the conservative party apparatus or otherwise, if you ask if there's an election today or anytime soon, how are you feeling about our chances? They'll tell you not very good. Okay. Yeah. Um, and like I said, you know, <laughs> everybody will always tell you, oh, the only poll that matters is the one that's on election day. Sure. They'll say that as they obsessively check the polls every single day and freak out about what they're telling you. And obviously the party has their internals that often tell a little bit different and more nuanced stories. Cause you know, you, when you're doing internal party polling, you can pull for more specific and interesting things than if you're just a general pollster in general. 
that's all fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, especially given the precedent that was established with Mr. Shear, where now this question of does every leader get two kicks at the can? That's no longer the case. That used to be the case. That's no longer the case. So now there's sort of like this, how well do we have to do? What do we have to do in order to make sure that Aaron's leadership is safe in a post-election context, even if Justin Trudeau still remains leader at the conclusion of that election campaign? Okay. Now, if you're asking me that opinion, my answer is go for the big win. Mm-hmm. Uh, try and go, you know, you got to be, we got to be bold and we got to be, and, and stop being so friggin' risk averse. And this is not just a, an Aaron O'Toole problem. This is a conservative problem that has plagued us for the better, like I'd argue even since the party's creation in many respects, is we're so afraid of our own shadow and how the media might interpret some, like, you know, guys, at the end of the day, part of politics is not just some sort of transactional thing where you poll people and say, okay, let's have like this hodgepodge of policies and that people are just going to end up voting for us. It's like, no, there, there's also a persuasion element in this, guys. Yeah. You got to believe in something. And when someone sees that you're genuine, right? you, you can't BS. I got to tell you, politicians think they can. You can't. When you genuinely believe something, people can hear it in your voice. They can see it in your eyes. They can see it in how you present something. Okay? And you make the case. So even if sometimes people don't agree with you right now, it doesn't mean they're not going to agree with you once you actually – you got to sell it to them too, right? Mm-hmm. Okay? Seems to me you've I also got to give them a clear – message of what you're selling exactly so exactly and and, and i think our biggest issue too is we often and not even particularly well but we get into the nitty-gritty of like okay let's find a tax credit that like i don't know if you buy chicken three times a week we'll give you like half of it back in some sort of tax credit you can adjust if you have two and a half children something ridiculous like all these hyper targeted tax credits for whatever or like you know your kids hockey skates and it's all sweet and dandy and it's fine but I got to tell you, and I remember I had this conversation with an unnamed conservative strategist during the 2019 election. I said, I got to be honest with you. I said, I don't think anybody chooses who they're going to vote for based on who gives them a $250 tax credit. So they don't. They just don't. I remember actually an anecdotal story. I was talking with uh, one of my dad's friends from when he was growing up. And he's like a regular guy from Montreal, you know, very middle class dude, lives a normal life, doesn't like politics very much. And he was like, I don't want to vote. And I said, why? And I'm a, I'm a partisan. Why don't you vote conservative? He goes, I don't care. What difference does it make between them? I said, oh, well, they're, they're going to cut your taxes. He goes, yeah, yeah. They're going to give me an extra 250 bucks. He says, that's one dinner, me and my family at the keg. Fantastic. You think that means I'm going to go vote for them? And I laughed. <laughs> I laughed. And I'm not, it's not to say that people don't care about these small tax cuts here and there. They do. It's just they don't care about it enough to go, wow, like, man, I really didn't like Aaron O'Toole or the conservative. But now that they're going to give me this super neat tax credit, I think I'm going to go rush to the polls and vote conservative. Nobody thinks like that. And um, I think this has been backed up at least by political campaigns for quite some time. People actually, very few people anyway, in general, vote based on the nitty gritty specifics of individual policy plans. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. They, they buy broad visions of the cool. kind of country, yeah, that you're trying. And then, right, that's the idea. It's like, if you know, to, to throw it back to high school, whatever you want to talk about, like the structure of an essay, right? You have your thesis statement, and then you put all of your supporting evidence afterwards, and you got your body and all that, and that's sweet and dandy. And you could have the best body paragraphs in the world with all the supporting evidence ever. But if your thesis statement sucks, it doesn't matter. And conservatives got to get with the program on that because – whether we like it or not, the message that Canadians have been sending us 
is your thesis statement really blows. We don't like it very much. And even if, even if the liberals, in many respects, we don't like their body paragraphs or their supporting documents, they've got, whether, you know, we want to like that it or buy. not, yeah. they got a thesis that I buy, they got a thesis that I find interesting, and that entices me to actually show up and vote for them. So, yeah. you know, what's your alternative other um, than telling me how horrible they are? No example is better than Donald Trump, who essentially ran a campaign on zero policies like none like the in fact the it, the recent campaign was an intentional absence of any policy whatsoever um but whatever cultural cues he's throwing off speak to the kind of like i guess the culture that he is trying to promote and the kind of the worldview that he's trying to promote which i believe is highly narcissistic and not healthy and everything but i guess that was a more cohesive vision you know that that's not, it's certainly not a it's certainly not a, a totally out to lunch vision because he got, you know, almost half the vote and he lost, thank goodness. But, uh, you know, it sh it's not like it was a, a, a far off fight. It was like a real kind of way to run a campaign with zero substance whatsoever and almost win. Right. Yeah. But I, I no, guess, exactly. you know, like it's, it's something, uh, uh, I mean, Trump, I think was a little bit more ahead of some of his boring stuff. He can, um, compatriots in the Republican Party in terms of understanding that politics is downwind of culture and knew that there was this culture war, if you want to call it, percolating yep. up. And I'll use another person I think that is just a total ninja uh, on social media. And generally, I'm going to put it conservative suck on the game. And I've seen that both, you know, provincially and federally, but AOC. AOC yep. is fantastic. And then let's bring it back to England. I mean, uh, Boris Johnson, you know, there's a certain element of him that is pretty good about it. Like in terms of even like the messy hair and the he's the affable, he's the affable buffoon that everybody sort of likes. Right. But, yeah. it, but it gets your attention and then you drop message right there. Right. Yeah. Like, and yeah. we know on the digital um, aspects, like attention is so short. So when you talk about something uh, in terms of, we need to be, you know, going for the big win, something that's more brash, like, yeah, I, I agree. But what's that going to be in a, in a digital medium? And how do conservatives get to that place? All right, well, I'll give you an example of like, uh, here's a policy that I've been in favor of for a while that you could package as a part of a pro worker sort of program that says, you know, for a very long time, the focus of government efforts has been on the top, you know, X amount of percentage of Canadians and regular people have been left behind. Okay. So what's the number one criticism conservatives face every time they say we need to cut taxes? that it disproportionately benefits people towards the upper end of the income scale. Yep. Yep. You know, it's a really neat way to work around that. There's this wonderful thing called the basic income tax exemption in this country. Okay. Mm. Right now, I think it sits at about $12,500. So what that means is if you make anything up till 12,500, you don't pay a diamond income tax. You know what I say we should do? Why don't you come out and say, we're going to make it 30,000. You know what that means? That would mean every single person in the country who makes minimum wage would not pay one cent in federal mm. income tax. Okay. Something like that. You come out. It's a very easy thing to sell. I've, I got You're, a policy you, to sell you. I got a policy to sell you after. We'll, sure. we'll talk afterwards. I got a policy. But, to sell but you. I'm saying, I'm saying something like this or, or even, and, and you know, and then people can bring up the revenue thing. And that's, I don't want to get into, I don't want to be the classic conservative meme that I'm talking about. It gets into the nerdy, like nitty gritty of all the policy <laughs> stuff. But I'm saying you make one big, easily sellable tax cut and something like that, by the way, would apply to everybody. Everybody in the country for the most part would get a tax cut. You could probably adjust it at the upper end of the income scale if you wanted to recuperate some revenue. But at the end of the day is that would be a tax cut that would be 
150% geared toward the people who need it the most to use a liberal like rhetorical uh, device that is almost impossible to attack. You know, that's the whole point. We have all these government programs that help people at the lower end of the income scale. And when you look at the, if they're a net taxpayer or not, right, it makes me laugh, but you have a whole portion of people in this country who pay taxes so that they can receive that same money back. Yeah. Why don't you just, why don't you just not take it from them in the first place? Wow. What a revolutionary idea. So there's stuff like, there's stuff like that that we can do, but beyond that, um, and this is a thing that I think not enough people appreciate. Um, this is for me anyway, the economic, this is the difficulty. I think even when it comes to making bold economic arguments, the traditional success or the traditional area where conservatives do well in Canada and otherwise has always been on the fiscal side of stuff. Great. Fantastic. Even when the liberals were in office in the early 2015 to 2019, if you did a standard public poll and you asked people, which party do you trust with your public dollars the most conservative party came up on top. I don't know if you guys saw the most recent Nanos poll. It's not good. Not good. Okay. For the first time in a long time, Canadians trust the liberals with their money more than they trust the conservatives. And in addition to that, we're living in a time period where, where attitudes towards public debt are changing, mm. largely because of the context of COVID-19. And if we come out and said, you know, we did, we're doing this right now, much to my chagrin, the whole, look at all this debt we're accumulating. And yeah, it's a problem. And we're going to have to deal with it eventually. The issue is we're not going to have to deal with it right now. And the liberals are going to be able to very astutely say, you know, you hear what they're saying? When Canadians were struggling yeah. because the world got shut down, they would have let you starve in the dark. And we made sure that you had food in your belly and electricity in your homes. And they're going to want to cut services go, and do austerity to fix it and all that whole song and dance. Exactly. So this is the other thing. A shift needs to happen where the debate needs to move away. And a lot of people, a lot of the fiscal hawks, and I, you know what? I am mostly a fiscal hawk, but I also recognize the way things are playing out. The debate needs to move away from how much should we spend slash should, or like should we spend at all to what should we be spending money on and how, okay? Beyond that, um, there's a real opportunity. The, the problem is I don't know how effective this is going to be in this particular election, just because at the end of the day, regardless of the fact that Canadians are very upset with the Chinese Communist Party at this particular moment in time, and yes, uh, do Canadians want to see some sort of realignment in Canadian foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis China? Yes, they do. I still think this election will be fundamentally a domestic policy election that's based on who is going to build back Canada better. Which recovery plan do I think is superior? Which one puts my family and my business and my whatever further ahead or back where we were as close as humanly possible before this thing uprooted our lives and destroyed everything? And Which it's is why be you hard. haven't put a budget out if you're the liberals because you don't want to paint the picture of what you actually have to overcome. I mean, you, no, exactly. you want to, you want to paint a picture of like, don't worry, we got this in hand. We've been doing really great and it's all going to be fine and dandy. And yeah, exactly. don't worry about the, don't worry about the numbers. They'll, they'll balance themselves. No. Yeah. I, on some level cynic in me, the other thing too, and this is one thing that at least from a pure political operative perspective, I really appreciate or I admire about the liberals is they're so cutthroat and short term in their thinking. Yeah. They're like, Oh, is this, is this going to be a problem in six years? Yeah, probably, but we're not going to be there anymore. So what do we care? Right, like some some poor conservative chap's gonna have to deal with this, and we're gonna get to call him a, 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 a an austerity loving bastard who hates the poor. Right, look at him just cutting all of your services. 
So, so no. And I think, so this is the issue is that the one thing that defined the Harper era in large part that we were able to consistently run on and that returned us to government twice at the very least was this idea of where these fiscal stewards we're going to make sure that everything's sort of, that's not really what people are looking for right now. They might be looking for it in five to 10 years. That's not what they're looking for right now. Yeah, so again, like, like I have from like pulling uh, here from Angus Reed, uh, just mid February. And some of this will probably change a bit, obviously based on vaccination rollouts. Um, but um, COVID-19 47%, like, okay. Top issues in Canada. Sorry. Um, top one is obviously COVID-19 at 47% healthcare, 36%. Related. Climate change at 29, economy at 27, income inequality, 23, housing affordability, 22, deficit in government spending, 21. And then here we go. Here, here's the conservative game right at the bottom. Jobs, followed by taxes, followed by crime, followed by energy and pipelines. Energy and pipelines yeah. at 11%. So yeah. you kind of look at it and you're like, ooh. It's not you know, so hot. So Not so, so hot. Is part of the dynamic that is forcing... I guess conservatives to take positions or to, to try to make issues out of things that are not real issues for a lot of Canadians. Is that a dynamic of two different generations within the party? Is that there's this older kind of like more established group of conservatives, mostly in Alberta, interior BC, Saskatchewan, who are super safe in their seats. And they have this opinion of like, we don't need to worry about changing the game too much. We just got to kind of keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, focus on that versus there are some more, I guess, tenuous seats or other places that there may pick up seats that we say we have to do something different and there's a conflict or clash between those. Because I always see, like you said earlier, um, the conservatives are always very uh, overly cautious and never trying to, you know, they never seem to stake out clear ground. And part of that is, at least on cultural issues, is that there's a very, very huge dichotomy in how people look at, you know, issues. So take, take abortion, um, you know, which is a boogeyman for the conservatives forever there is a strong contingent of conservative mps who really want to make it an issue and so you can't as a leader come out and say it's never going to be an issue they're just kind of really backwards um we're, ne we're never going to like let this thing get out of hand as a party you can't say that without alienating that group of voters and that group of mps who sit in your caucus and likely have more senior positions because they've been around for a while. Like, is there a big, yeah. is there an infighting happening around those like two visions of the party? I wouldn't say that it's, a, it's a, so the interesting thing is I wouldn't categorize it as a generational issue. Actually, there's elements of that, but to be quite honest with you, the biggest issue is geography. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That that's the biggest cleavage. Okay. Um, and, and this is the honest to God issue is a lot of the times you'll talk with, you know, conservatives from Alberta and God bless them. And I understand Albertan grievances. Trust me. I think a lot I'm, of them I'm are Albert, legitimate. Straight up. Yeah. I'm, perfect. There most of my life. Yeah. So I, I, I used I, to have I'm, an Alberta I'm, separatist party pin that I used to wear on my high school. It's a real thing. <laughs> so, so God, yeah. you well, know, well, we make I'm, mistakes. I'm the living embodiment of the Eastern bastard. Right. Um, and I think, I think the big issue here that you have with a lot of folks. So first of all, let me say this, the way politics in Canada works right now, there is a, a growing, it's like there are perverse incentives that contribute to the conservatives messaging the way they do and putting policy the way that they do. Okay. For one, the whole super hardcore focus on energy and pipelines and oil, fantastic fundraiser raises a crap ton of money for the party in ways that people really don't understand. Okay. 
Um, it's also like, listen, you have to, you have to pay attention to your base. But I remember saying this, actually, I said, guys, why does somebody in the GTA care about pipelines? Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's not always direct. Um, like, you know, there, somebody in the GTA should care about pipelines, but, but the amount of political effort required to convince a GTA voter that they need to really care about energy East or about, you know, getting yeah. oil to, the Pacific, it's not really going to work Yeah, for the most part. It's just not going to work. People care about different things in different parts of the country. And the problem is, and I, I said this during the whole sheer must go situation, actually, in that first interview that I gave the day after the election, I said the conservative party of Canada is at a crossroads and we need to make a decision. Do we want to content ourselves with being a Western Canadian protest party? Or do we want to be a national, a true national party that regularly competes for the soul of the country? Okay, and regular shots at actually holding governance, not being the party people turn to. Like Canadian, effectively, the way Canadian politics has worked for the last several decades is the Liberals are the natural governing party, and every once in a while they misbehave, and Canadians go, "Okay, you guys need a little bit of a timeout because we think <laughs> that you need to sl- you need a slap on the wrist." And then effectively, the Liberals go sit in timeout, and then once Canadians feel that they've sufficiently learned their lesson, they bring yeah. them back. That's exactly until they until they misbehave again and they go, okay, you go back. And that's why, um, you know, you only get a conservative majority government every 20 years. Uh, if you average it out right from Deacon Baker to Mulroney and then Mulroney to Harper, that's the way that it's tend to be. Um, yeah. So we, we, we got to work with that. And I think one of the biggest ones, and again, this is, there's a lot of cover here, but I'll say, and this is one thing where me and, and Ben are, are in sync on which is Canadian conservatism often feels like an American criticism of Canada. Yep. Yep. I agree. I agree. Okay. I, like I listen to the way people talk. I see party activists and MPs wearing MAGA hats and I'm like, Oh my God. And you know, for a party that loves to talk about how out of touch the liberals are with regular Canadians, <laughs> sometimes, some, sometimes I go, guys, you know what? I don't know if they're the ones, you know, on, on a lot of stuff. <laughs> Maybe we need to look in the mirror a little bit and start asking ourselves if we're really the arbiters of like the average Canadian and what they think about certain stuff, right? Anthony, can I so ask you, you something? So, sorry, yeah. and I, I just want to interject here because I'm trying to riff off of what you're going on here a bit. Um, when I think of some of the kind of the upper crust here of, of federal liberals right now, and you like Justin Trudeau, um, Kristen Freeland, and there's another character that's come back into the, the fold and whether he's going to be a liberal or not, he sure looks and smells like a liberal is uh, Mark Carney. Right. And I kind of get this, like it's, and I think the conservatives miss this, especially in terms of attracting youth is it's almost a movement. It's not a party. It's a movement. And you look at like what Mark Carney's coming out right now and the stuff that he touches on, very much ties into that Angus Reid poll, right? Like he's talking about the climate change, the uh, changing world and all that stuff. Um, very timely in terms of when he's coming up and where the federal liberals will just have to riff off because it just plays into movement. What, instead of like policy technocratic issues, what movement does a conservative party government, what movement does it create or shape or give voice to that attracts a new generation in Canada? What would that look like? 
This is a great question. And uh, I'm going to be a classic politician here. I'm going to answer a separate question before I get to this one. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> because you've identified something that's very important that not enough people talk about. And I'll, I'll do a quick comparison to what you see in the States and the UK, but then also in Canada, the difference between the liberal infrastructure that exists and the, conserv and the conservative one. Okay? In Canada, there is no conservative movement. There is the conservative party. Okay. In the United States, you have the Republican Party, which is a political party, right, that their goal is to win office. But you have a zillion and one think tanks, organizations that are conservative and are a part of the movement that drive the discussion on any number of issues, be it social policy, domestic policy, taxes, foreign, you know what I mean? Anything. In Canada, it's starting now. Like you've got a couple organizations like the Donald Laurier Institute that mm -hmm. does great stuff. But it's still very, very, very I don't want to say, I'm not saying juvenile in the sense that it's child, but I'm saying it's in its infancy, right? It's not, there's not a, a lot of that richness. And you see that in the United Kingdom as well, a lot of that. The liberals, on the other hand, wow. Hats off to these guys. They've got institutions through the woo-ha, okay? And it makes it much, it makes it much easier for them. And I'll tell you, one thing that I've, I've said to the conservatives as well, um, I, that we talk about, okay, what do they do differently than us? First of all, they've got an ecosystem. Okay. They park their people. They've got a whole list of corporations, think tanks, law firms that like all of their people, oh, we're not in government. You're going to go work here for a few years. You're going to work here. For, there's a network and they make sure that their people eat. Okay. Yeah. yeah they make that. sure their people eat. The conservatives, we pass the accountability act, screw all of our people over so they can't get jobs afterwards. And then when Harper leaves, like, I'll tell you, I had friends that were working in minister's offices for several years who couldn't find jobs for a year after Harper lost office. Yeah. Like, we basically said, oh, we lost. Have fun. Let me know what it's like swimming out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I hope you don't drown. Okay? Yeah. Doesn't create that sense of loyalty. We haven't built that. The other thing, too, and then I'll get back to your question, I promise. And the last thing, too. <laughs> Every municipal council in any major city in the country is dominated by liberals. Every school board, every local charitable organization, every, everything at the grassroots local level, if you talk to anyone, they're all libs. And then they, so they do politics the right way. They start local. And then when it's time for federal politics, they've got all of that. They, you know what I mean? They, they already have it all built up. Whereas conservatives try to do it the reverse. Okay. We try and do like this. We, we go right from the top federal politics level and doesn't understand. Or, or people also just don't get that some people don't vote based on policy at all. It's all personal, what they think of the person. Or this guy has been in my community for X amount. I've seen him around. So he's my guy and I'll vote for him no matter which party that he ends up yeah, running for. I agree. So we don't do any of these things. Um, the party is that is a lack of funding? Is that a lack of effort? Is that a lack of like, what's, what's the reason we don't? That's a, there's a lot of reasons that we don't. I think that was part. Partially... Is, is it a culture? Because I think I, I'm sure when it comes to the local government stuff, conservatives tend to be people who are more anti-government, for lack of a better term, yeah. who don't see like, oh yeah, me sitting on my school board is a super good use of my time. I'd rather go build a business or go do other stuff. That tends to be more the conservative mindset, and maybe exactly. that's a weakness in the in the local sense. But in terms of the think tanks and the institutional stuff, I'm curious what you think the reason why there's a lack of network there. So and I'll tell you I, one We thing. still haven't got to James's question. So I'm yeah, still, I will. Still, I will. This is good I because I, I, I I've heard this from, from younger, uh, younger folks as well. Um, and I've heard this both at the federal level and then even center-right provincial level um, where they, they juxtapose against the left where they're like, yeah, well, like if you were a failed candidate 
or an ex-staffer, like they take care of you. There's, there's, yeah. there's jobs, there's think tanks, there's, you know, they mentor people through like, yeah, school boards up through councils. Um, they actually even like link them up with senior mentors and all that. They go, conservatives don't have that. And so like, you do not create one, a sense of loyalty amongst young people. It's like, Oh, like, yeah, candidate is done or um, politician is done. And it just kind of cuts the, the youth. That's why and, James and, is and making this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a part of it. It's a part of it. Um, you know, like it, 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 I, in terms of attracting younger people, in terms of shaping some form of movement and all that. Yeah, there is that element there. But because I've seen so many of the younger people like just go, well, what's in it for me? Like, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm cast asunder. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to work like, I'm going to work there. like a dog on a campaign for nothing. Right. And then, you know, I sort of get forgotten after so that's been the case for a lot of people. Right. Or, you know, you go do the conservative party internship and they work you like a dog and they forget about you afterwards. It's a lot of, that's been the case of a lot of people in other cases as well. Uh, but to, to answer your question, um, Greg, real quick about the lack of think tank or, and even new media, like non garbage far right clickbait right wing no, media built on and liberal tears as we call it like actually, exactly yeah. okay is that for whatever reason rich people in canada do not have the same philanthropic political attitude that you see in britain and the united states so in the united states you'll have a guy who's really rich right pick your take your pick on the left or the right who decides i am going to fund two or three think tanks and I, I don't have any expectation of returning any money on this. I just believe in things very strongly and I want to pay people to advocate for them. Okay, great. Or, you know, I'm going to buy or invest in media outlet X and I know that I'm never going to return any money off of this, but I'm going to do it because, right, rich people in Canada don't do that. They're, they're altogether uninterested in, in, in these sorts of endeavors, right? Um, with the exclusion of a couple of families who mostly are involved with the liberals. <laughs> uh, right. But, but there's no big conservative patrons in this country who, you know, like, and, and that infrastructure used to exist during the Brian Mulroney era. I wasn't around obviously, but I'm saying talking to people about this, um, you know, where you'd have young people who are up and comers who like, you know, you got to place them in a job. We're going to pay you, X amount of money per year, and you're just going to do politics all year long, okay? Yep. Not working for the party, you know, whether it's at organization X, Y, or Z, but like, we're going to turn you into something. We're going to give you the tools you need to succeed. And we're going to make sure that while you're in the process of becoming the person we think you can be eventually, that you can eat and put a, a roof over your head, right? <laughs> and you're not, like, that's isn't the point. It, isn't it hilarious when, uh, like, because it's, it's such an opposite when, you know, people always talk about the secret agenda and it's like yeah. this conspiracy of like these, all these third party associations and groups. Yeah. And if you play on the inside and you, you're on the center, right, you see like, no, like nothing really exists. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's like, no. I wish, I wish, give me, <laughs> give me my conspiracy. Yeah, but no, it, it, exactly. So we, we lack a lot of that. I think it's also just because, um, the infrastructure is fairly new. Like, you know, yes, the Conservative Party is a merger of pre-existing parties. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, we're talking about a political, a political formation that's 17 years old. It's not really that old, okay? The other thing, too, is our, our founding father, so to speak. I know Peter McKay likes to say that he, he was a co-founder and, you know, he deserves it. But I'm saying, realistically speaking, the big kahuna founding father of this party is Stephen Harper and will always be Stephen Harper. 
And I think part of this is we're going through a little bit of growing pains because, you know, not, I'm not saying this in a literal sense, uh, but like dad died and now we have to take care of the family estate. Okay. Mm. And we don't really know what's going on with that. And we're kind of freaking out because we never thought that we didn't think the day would come so soon. Um, so we're going through a little bit of that in terms of, want to remind me of your question just so I can yeah, answer like, it properly. Like, <laughs> well, I go, I go back to the liberals where like, especially that, 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 Justin, Justin the movement, Trudeau, Christina yeah. Freeland, like, and now someone like Mark Carney, they're a, almost a voice to a movement. They are like Ted talk speakers. It's that Ted talk type element. And then you just have dusty, I don't know what on the conservatives and it's about the party. There's no, like, it's not a, a voice to a movement. I kind of felt there was a little bit of like, Oh, is this a, a movement type thing that, um, yeah. Tool, like some of his videos felt a little bit more. There was the warm tones, the, the something bigger than the party. But I think that's right? because and bigger than the policy. And so, and I, I feel like a lot of times they like, especially for, I think they've looked at younger people is younger people. A lot of times don't want to associate themselves with parties. They want to associate themselves with movements and they'll go to yeah. whatever political affiliation supports that movement. So fearlessly, yeah. what does that look like on the center right in Canada? And you know, what is that going to look like? for younger younger people that next generation right and, well, I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you if i knew the answer to that question flat out, i'd be a very wealthy man <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but all, all kidding aside i think especially this is based on my experience with people especially coming out of the out of the pandemic young people regardless of political affiliation and even just like you know this mass of people who just don't care about politics that much unless they need to right or in between elections sort of thing is um freedom, but not in that sort of meme conservative way. Mm -hmm. Okay, people want like the lockdowns have pissed a lot of people off, rightfully or wrongfully. And my generation, like there, there is a, when it comes to young people, there is this perception that young people sort of got the shaft for an older generation. Yep. We're not like, don't get me wrong, man. Nobody wanted granny to die. We're not, we're not suggesting that, but it's like, okay, like we gave up, you know, a year and change of our lives. A lot of us who are just starting in our careers one way or another. Okay. Now there's got to be a little bit of sweetness on the other side to sort of repay, the, <laughs> to repay the deal here on some level. Right. And meanwhile, because, you know, I was hoping that this, uh, this pandemic houses would kind of fall. So maybe yeah. I could get a foothold in the market. Yeah, exactly. Me, like and it's no. gone up way more. Like, <laughs> no, now, now exactly. Right. Uh, artificially low interest rates, once again, coming in clutch. Um, <laughs> you got to prop up yeah. the only industry that keeps growing in Canada, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Canada, a real country with a real economy based on speculative real estate prices. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, listen, honestly, the difficulty with this is, and, and this is where it gets a little bit more complicated and you need, you're going to need a great leader who has a lot of nuance on this. Okay. I think conservatives made a very big mistake surrendering the entire cultural and social arena to the liberals. Okay. A very, very, very big one. I think here's another interesting tidbit for you that's related to this, but I think it's very important to stress. If you go to any developed democratic, democratic country in the world and you pull the public, about which party they most closely associate with patriotism. Almost invariably, the mainstream center-right party in that country is the one that comes in first. 
in the United States. I think it might have changed, but the Republicans were always considered like the "We Love America" party. Sure. You go, you go to the United Kingdom. The UK Tories are considered the "We Love Britain" party. Okay, like this is sort of the way it goes. In Canada, the Liberals poll as the patriotic party. I think, and Harper did this really great towards the, you know, when when we were winning. But we need to be the party that drapes ourselves in the Canadian flag and reclaims the mantle of Canadian patriotism. Totally agree. And not and not cede that to the liberals and be the people who are like And they're not holding wish- on to that too closely anyway because it's No, they like the- they don't like the idea of nationalism as a general No. Yeah, and they're, they're busy they're busy talking about um here, I'm going to turn the lights up. They're busy talking about this whole shtick, you know, how we're a genocide bunch of genocidal maniacs and we've committed all these egregious crimes and not to say that there's not some truth. Like, listen, Canada has sins in our past, so to speak. And, and it's, it's fine and, and ultimate, but we, we're not only defined by that. And I think there's a real opportunity, I can tell you. I'll give you an example. Here's an anecdote. I like to talk anecdotes just because I think they're more personable. I remember I was helping out a candidate in 2019. He's running in a riding in Montreal with a very large Filipino community that votes like 85% from the candidate. He's Anthony House Bars. No, okay. Mm-hmm. We went to the community association. We want to have a chit chat with them and say like, why doesn't your community vote conservative? Okay. You guys are churchgoers. You go to church every Sunday. You know, you're socially conservative folks. You're a very entrepreneurial bunch. Like you, if we had to craft the archetypical conservative voter, Many people in your community fit it, and yet you guys never even consider us. Why? And it was, some of it was just because I said, well, the liberals show up. A lot of it was that. They're actually, the liberals are here. When we have our events, when we have requests, they're here and they help us out. Um, but it was interesting because when we talked about a lot of their policy concerns, the president of the association, okay, who was a fairly recent immigrant himself, said, I don't understand why Canada spends so much money overseas when we have problems with our own citizens here. Yeah. And I laughed. I said, this is the kind of thing if it came out of a white person's mouth would be, you know, considered horrible. <laughs> but, but, and, and it's interesting. I, you know, when you talk about Canada first or America first and the way it gets interpreted. Um, and I, I'm somebody who comes from an interesting background in terms of like all my grandparents are immigrants, but I'm saying growing up in Montreal, my friend group is very diverse. I talk to a lot of people. I'm involved in some nonpartisan organizations. And whenever I go to, you know, uh, visible minority groups or, you know, and, and I said, you know, why do you guys not consider the conservatives or why do you, why do you recoil when you hear something like Canada first? And they go, because when we, when we hear Canada first, we hear a very, what, what we hear is a very specific kind of Canadian first. Yep. I agree with that. Okay. I agree with that. And I said that, and that's, and by the way, you know, conservatives like to play this game or, Oh my God, why do people think we're racist? Because let's be honest, we have at various points in the past actively pandered and, you know, barbaric cultural practices hotline. Hmm, wonder what that was about, guys. Like, come on. And I thought this, listen, I'm not going to be one of those conservatives as a whole are not racist. The party's not racist. We have a very proud history and we don't talk about it enough. We also don't stress that enough. And Aaron, Aaron's done a decent job at this, but I think we need to do a bit more. This idea that if we talk about Canada first, foreign policy, economic policy, or otherwise, okay, that includes Mohammed from Toronto. Yeah. Okay. That, that includes, you know what I mean? Whoever, that, you know, that includes the guy who goes to the Gurdwara. That in, it's not just about white people. Okay. It's not just about this old, you know, wasp, this vision of this old, like, Britannic, British Empire loyalist sort of Canada, and it applies to everybody, and that there's a place for the Conservative Party for you as well. 
Um, there was almost we, like, got, yeah, there was almost an element there within Stephen Harper um, and uh, conservatism. And it kind of, I think, veered off the, uh, off the lanes a bit at, at times. Um, but a very proud Canadian thing. And I don't think it's really that hard to, to slightly change it to go, yeah, Canada first. Canada first in terms of the best place in the world for families, the best place. Yeah, for, yeah you know, I, I keep like coming back to families. Bring, bring, like bring them, bring them. Families here. is the bedrock. I, you know, yeah, I feel families have... is is both both touches on a lot of policy issues that are important to Canadians, like childcare, housing, yeah. you know, employment to some extent. That's huge. It's natural. It's more of a natural fit for conservatives because they've always talked about families. Um, you know, we kind of talked about this with Ben. I think it was last week, but but you know, part of the problem is that when you say pro-family, the, that kind of name and that idea has been co-opted by a group of, you know, conservatives who essentially just associate that with abortion and, and gay rights issues. And that's, yeah. that has to be severed. And that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, why is it so difficult to, like you said, you've got to make a choice You're at a crossroads. You either want to be a modern party that has a chance of winning the election every time it comes up, or you want to be a protest party that's going to be a home to kind of some fringe ideas where they can kind of live in the back, yeah. in the dark corners, and then you know we can win an election every twenty years. If you want to be a mainstream party, you've got to you've got to excise some of those like things that everybody now is in agreement are not appropriate and not kind of a, a healthy discourse to have within a party. But how is it that we haven't been able to do that? Uh, is it is it because that is a significant number of the caucus have has those kind of, you know, sympathies out in Alberta and Saskatchewan and BC. Listen, so here's what it comes down to. Um, I can tell you, I've worked with a lot of social conservative groups at various points in my political involvement on any number of things. Um, and it's funny because they always say, you know, Anthony, when you start talking, you don't sound, you know, you sound like a social conservative in your respects. And like when it comes to the family, like I always laugh, but like I'm an Italian guy. Okay. I grew up around family and I have some very, very specific views. Not like I'm the biggest pro gay marriage guy in the world. And I think I'm pro choice. Um, not because of anything other than I think that the harm that would be caused by having women illegally seek out abortions is far worse than the damage that, that that's my position. And on. I think it's it, a free market thing. People should be able to make their own choices. I yeah, mean, that, that that's exactly. always been a, you know, discontinuity for me, but anyway. But, but what I think, here's the key. First of all, social conservatives are not a monolith. People don't know this, but there's, even within the social conservative fabric, yeah, there are true. many different, there are many different fabrics, okay? There's some people who really don't care about gay marriage. Their issue is abortion and abortion only. Then there's other groups who actually believe or not really don't care about abortion and care about gay marriage. There's all sorts, there's some people really only care about the trans issue, but then there's also the other thing. So another thing too, social conservatives are voters like anybody else. And yes, they might care about certain issues more than others, but a lot of them, regardless of their view on a couple of hot button issues, they also have very strong views on foreign policy, on any number of all the other things. And you can still hold on to those voters by appealing very strongly to other components of their sure. worldview without necessarily, but here's, so here's the big thing. And this is one thing that I'll say conservative politicians, particularly in the context of leadership races do way too often. Okay. This has been my experience with social conservatives. If you sit down with them and you make it clear where you stand on any given issue and where you're willing to play and where you're not willing to play, they'll respect you. There's not going to be any sort of animosity. It's like, okay, you know, this is what Anthony believes. This is what he doesn't believe. And okay. 
But if you make the mistake <laughs> of making a million and one promises that you then do not keep, oh, baby, will they come for you with knives by the dozen, okay? And that's the honest to God truth. And I think one of the reasons that we, we have uh, this problem, and, and I think Andrew McDougall actually wrote a great piece about this, and he's not the only one. There's been a lot of this written in the States as well. Conservative politicians on any number of issues need to start being ready to be having honest and frank and oftentimes difficult conversations with our base. Yep. And say, listen, like, I'll give an example on immigration. At least this is my take on it. I'm curious what you guys think, but like Canada if we do not maintain consistently high levels of immigration coming into this country, we're screwed Big time. economically Big time. and otherwise. Yeah. So we can all pretend that, you know, even if it was desirable that we could like, you know, we need to restrict immigration. We need to be more. No. Okay. Yeah. This is the reality of the situation. This is why we can't do that. This is why we need to continue. Yes. There's a debate to be had about who we want to take and how and what, what the system looks like. You know, what the balance is between family reunification, economic migrants, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, like, no, we're not closing the doors to Canada tomorrow. That's not desirable. We shouldn't even close it halfway. Okay. If anything, we the should door should increase be open it. more. We should increase Exactly. It. The, the yeah. door should, we, we should, we should build a second door. Okay. And open that one too. Exactly. And I think this also applies on social issues. And by the way, I'll tell you this. I might've thought this when I was younger, after my time in the party, I'm telling you. There is no path to a conservative victory in this country by mass expulsion of social conservatives. It's not going to happen. They're a part of the coalition and we need them. Okay. Regardless of anybody's moral feelings on it, whatever I'm saying, like just for a pure mathematical basis, social conservatives are a fundamental part of the conservative coalition. Okay. So okay. Uh, I'm just going to, I want, cause I want to dig into that. Cause it's something I think about all the time. So I, I have nothing against your point. I'm not trying to argue against you, but I want to dig into it a bit. So why is that? Because if the social, if the social issues get cut out of the mainstream kind of party policies and kind of get excluded, where do those voters go? Like what, I, I just don't see those voters turning around and saying, well, I didn't get to talk about, you know, abortion enough in the conservative party. So I'm going to vote for Justin Trudeau. No, you're right. That's uh, that's what Brian Mulroney and Kim Campbell thought too. Right. Okay. And, and that's my point. Okay. That's what, they, yeah. Well, where, where are they going to go? Well, they'll, I got to tell you, if you look at Canadian history, okay. The political parties, whether it's CCF, whether it's the SoCred movement, whether it's the reform party, Western populism is a really powerful thing. And it's not just the West, but I'm saying there are certain factions in this country who say, and, and here, here's, here's how I'll explain it to you. Okay. Cause this is the argument that we advance. We say, conservatives need to moderate on this, 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 and this, and this, and regardless of whether I agree with you, which I do in many respects, we need to do all these moderation procedures in order to make sure that we can compete and win on the federal level. Then we get our butts kicked in federal elections and they go, okay, so we did all the moderating and we're still losing. So <laughs> why don't I pick up my bags, go home, create a party that actually represents what I want to yeah. say. Yeah. Okay. We, I, we're not going to hold government now, but we weren't holding government before anyway. So who cares? At least now I have people who are actually able to say what I want. That's the mentality of a growing number of people. Okay. Um, and it's dangerous. I'm concerned about it as a conservative. I think that the party right now, the coalition is the most fragile it's been in quite some time. Yeah. Okay. But I'll tell you the, the real angle for, for social conservatives, at least this is from my perspective and, and talking is that 
the, the, the conversations in society at large have started to shift away from in the early 2000s, it was much more about should these things be allowed, okay? Abortion is a little bit longer than that, but I'm saying like, you know, yes or no. And then uh, gay marriage, yes or no. Transgenderism, yes or no. Conscience rights are very big, especially in the context of something like medically assisted dying yep. and all these new issues that are coming up and enforcing as conservatives this idea that freedom is a two-way street, okay? Yes, you know, um, gay people have the right to be married and they, if they want to get married, they should be. But at the same time, you know, a Catholic priest is not going to be obligated to officiate a gay marriage ceremony if they don't want to or an Orthodox rabbi or, you know, any mom in a mosque. Um, may, like medically assisted dying. If you have a doctor who has a deep and profound moral opposition to the idea that he should, you know, kill somebody, that that should be well within their rights to refuse to conduct that procedure. Um, among other things, and that, that kind of conversation, that about this, not that the social conservative viewpoint is going to be imposed on society, which I think is something that we can all agree is A, not feasible, and B, hurt us at the ballot box. But this idea that people who have socially conservative beliefs should be allowed to live their life in accordance with those beliefs without the state doing the reverse, which is saying, we've decided you're a bunch of backward, you know, insert whatever, mm -hmm. and now you're going to have to live according to the secular values today and the age that we live in today. Yep. So there's a lot, there's a lot that can be done there. But then the other thing too is, and this you're talking about families, we also have to take the social conservative label, reclaim it, and start expanding what that word means. Yeah, I'm, that's only, where I think it's got to go. 100%. And, 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 and we as yeah, when you talk about yeah. that and you talk, I think it was uh, Bill C7. And what I thought, I was just like, you know, how hard was it for the conservatives to outrightly come and say, hey, you know, we value life. Like we value, like it's something that we will fight for. And we have concerns in this. And, you know, the NDP beat them to it. The NDP came in with the disability like thing. And I was just like, oh man, like. That should have been our, it should have been easy bread been, and butter yeah. for us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, uh, because that's I, like, I, yeah, I like will say providing that goes back to family that goes back to community. Those are the things you need to fight for if you actually believe those things. Okay? I, I, I will say just as a lawyer who works in an area that actually deals with maid and uh, assistance in dying issues and have had, I'll say clients who have been kind of like examined the process and I, I'm somewhat familiar with it. I would say that it is a very, very difficult uh, issue uh, that does have some similarities to abortion in the sense that if you just restrict it completely, uh, people will find a way to do it. And that can be more harmful than, than not. Um, I have the same concerns that a lot of people have around kind of, is it, is this empowering the state or doctors to kind of encourage people to end their lives because they're too much of a drain on society or they have a disability? I think those are all real issues, but I think that it's a, all I'll say is it's a highly complicated issue. Sure. Yeah, it, it is. And, but I, I think, you know, what Anthony is kind of talking about, about the SOCON element is we still can't be scared to, to have some of those conversations. We still have to allow people to have that freedom of conscience to speak to those things based on elements of what they yeah. believe in. No, no, absolutely. And, and you know? but they should do that in a full throated manner. Like you said, probably rather than waiting for the NDP to beat you to the punch, they should have been like, look, yeah. this is about freedom for everybody. It's about freedom for people to make the choice of 
their lives and how to handle their health and their future. But it's also about a system where people have to assist them in that and they may have uh, reservations about doing that and they shouldn't be compelled to do so. So I, have, I, I, I mean, there is these social issues that still are concerned. Like, and I sometimes feel like we may be a bit dismissive of the SOCON element. And I still think like, yeah. you know what? No, like they're, they're, they're again, politics is downwind of culture. These are cultural elements. These are value propositions. Uh, and again, the, the questions of, of, of our humanity, of, of who we are as a people and what do we value? Right. And exactly, so, you know, I, I like, yeah, the abortion thing is obviously a difficult one. And uh, you know, you can go down the whole theology type approach on it. I'm not going to do it, but it's like, it, it, I, you know, I agree with Anthony's thing. And I think someone like uh, Caitlin Ferguson is written for the Atlantic uh, down South has done some very good nuanced discussions and she's done the same argument as Anthony has done, right. That um, very fearful of the things that women would have to try to do if they wanted, like, you know, to go that choice. And that's just not where we're going to go. Right. And um, I, I think but most people don't make, most people that go through an element face an element of uh, or face the choice of abortion it's not an easy choice but but exactly but this is the point though and this is where i think there's opportunities particularly when it comes to family and this is where different elements of conservative ideology come into conflict with one another and we're gonna have to decide which one wins out right Conserv oh we hate socialism and government spending but we also love families yeah it's and like, that's the thing it's like, like okay we're looking at the negative realm how do you form that to a positive exactly sense? so but then it's hey, like we want to so, help you have kids we want to have so, like exactly formation. so exactly so okay you love families and you're upset that you know not enough people are having them or that families are breaking apart okay well we got to figure out why and maybe just maybe there's a role for the government there and making it easier for people to have those right and we talked a lot of these issues are Set or, 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 or this particular issue is a outcome that comes about as a result of things like housing being ridiculously expensive, sure childcare is. being ridiculously expensive, right? Like, you know, I, I've got friends who want to get married and want to have kids, but can't because they can't afford it, yeah. right? Among many, among many other plethora of issues, they feel that they can't, right? Or even by the way, like even on the abortion issue, like one thing that I've spoken about with people is like, you know, I'm pro-choice. A lot of the times when people say they're pro-choice, they have a specific choice in mind. <laughs> which is abortion, but there is another one. And I'm saying why, you know, it's maybe it's worthwhile asking the question too. I don't support any legal restrictions on abortion whatsoever. Because again, it opens up a can of worms. And I think that the harm from that is greater than the harm on the other side. But at the same time, it's a worthwhile question to ask, why do women have abortions? And is there something the government can do, not in a banning or restriction way, but in a support way, that can make it easier for women to make the other choice, like finding out what the stressors are, right? Okay, well, this person felt like she, you know, maybe this person wanted to have the child, but felt like she couldn't because of any number of reasons. And is there a role for the state to help her out so that she can make the other decision? A million one different things like that. And I think this is the question that a lot of pro-lifers need to ask, okay, is what matters more to you? Reducing the number of abortions performed every year or banning abortion? Because those goals are not the same. They don't mean the same sort of thing. And I think mm -hmm. there's a way, there's a way for us to approach even something like that issue. If you want to talk to the pro-life crowd, okay? There's a lot of most the average Canadian, by the way, and it's something that's not necessarily spoken about enough. If you if you actually pull people about their personal positions on abortion, what they feel about it morally, people are uncomfortable by it. That's normal. Okay. There, there's but most people will have a response, like something along the lines that I said, which is, yeah, it makes me feel uncomfortable, but it's gonna be a combination of what me and what Greg said earlier. 
You know, it's her body, her choice. It's their freedom or this, or some, some it's variation. Jeff, but that's okay. We'll, we'll forgive. We'll sorry. Like... Sorry. So forgive me. Forgive me, Jeff. Forgive no, that's me. Okay. It's, I get, I, I'm you're bad. actually not the first person. I get that with the G yeah. on the screen. Yeah. But, but so, so I'm saying some, some variation of, um, what was I saying? But, but like this idea that it's not, we're going to be banned and, and hateful and spiteful, whatever. Like, like there's, there's other, and something thinking outside of the box and just saying that, or even just talking like the talk we don't conservatives don't really use moral language anymore. Yeah. Okay. Saying something like, and I think one of the big issues when it comes to talking about the family is we always spoke about women, which made us sound sexist about why women need to be mom. You know, I think the first duty of any man is to be a father. Then it's mm. to be a husband and then it's everything else. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't care whether that person happens to be with a man or with a woman. I care that, you know, like, like I think families are the single most important institution in society. You sound, you if sound you like want, a conservative right there. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but I'm serious. I'm saying if you want a strong society yep. full of decent citizens, you need a society of strong families. And by right. the way, that doesn't always mean, like, I got to tell you, like, the other thing, the nuclear family is a new thing. That, that is a, that, the nuclear family magically appeared in the 1950s. Yep. Okay. But I, I, again, Italian, Mediterranean background. We're all about the extended family. Grandparents have a role, aunts and uncles and big cousins. Time, and it, like, mm -hmm. it's much bigger than that. And when you have, there's a great article actually written, I think by Andrew Sullivan on this very topic of the family. And he says, one of the big issues in today's day and age, particularly when you have the nuclear family is like a divorce happens and the entire thing explodes. Explodes. Yeah. Right. Uh, David Brooks Where, did this as well. And it was like, yeah, yeah. Talking about like, yeah, expanding the definition of family. Uh, my wife's Italian, her, all her family's in Italy and I, it totally rocked my world into understand what family is. There's always a sister, a brother, yeah, and who's jumping someone. in and helping oh, yeah. and yes. right. And like, you know, I think, I think that's awesome. And I'm saying we need to rediscover the communitarian aspect of conservatism. And, and some of it is, is, is not state driven, but I'm saying that idea that, okay, if you don't like the government and you think the state is too powerful, then you need to have other key institutions in society that can counteract it. Yep. And the number one is, and right. And sometimes that's going to involve some form of, of, of not necessarily just pure dogmatic free market capitalistic rhetoric or policies on that sort of thing. And here's the other but thing. No, I, if you need to put policies in place, let's take, you know, the $10 daycare or, you know, state daycare or whatever it is. If you see that as a conservative, you see that coming down the pipe that like there will be a day when that happens. I would much rather take a part in bringing it about in a way that, is more is less kind of obtrusive state interference than the NDP or the liberals would rather. So, I'd rather beat them to the punch and say let's do it let's do it our way and say that we're putting it forward and and do it in a more kind of decentralized free market kind of you know let's let's cut let's 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 force you know this is more of a provincial or city issue but you know like let's force the free market into the housing to help solve some of the housing issues that should be a natural conservative position it helps out families and you should better to do it now rather than have the liberals you know cock it up with you know whatever subsidies they're going to do and just lower the interest rate again to fix it so this is beautiful you brought up and this is another point that i wanted to make which is i find a lot of the time when society is having a debate on something, conservatives, when they don't like the debate, right? So let's say when it's about childcare or, what, or, or you know what? Climate change or marijuana sure. legalization. Sure, it's all the, yeah. Marijuana legalization. It was clear marijuana was going to be legalized eventually, okay? Conservatives died on our, we're never going to legalize it hill. 
and we lost some support stupidly because of that. And then we also gained some. You're out of the conversation. Exactly. But imagine now if we would have shifted. So it's like once we accept, okay, Canadians are telling us that they want marijuana to be legalized, but now let's shift the frame of the debate away from a should it be legalized, yes, no, towards a what does legalization look like? Mm. And then all of a sudden, these guys want government-owned marijuana dispensaries we want to have more of a free market same thing by the way when it comes to climate change canadians now overwhelmingly and i gotta tell you even young people who are of conservative persuasion it was shocking thing when i first started to be exposed to that want solutions 100%. to climate change huge 100%. misconception so about instead 100 in instead of doing the whole we don't need to do anything on climate change thing that's a lefty issue instead shift the debate towards what does a climate change policy look like the liberals, they want to do all of this, like you said, big government intrusion, all these different things. What is a conservative solution look like? Why is it different? Same thing when it comes to housing, right? So this is where I think there's a, there's a, there's a great opportunity as well, which is effectively the way politics should work in theory is the Canadian public, the populace as a whole, says these are the issues we care about. And then the various parties come up with their own solution or the various ideological movements that are come up with their prescription. This is the problem you've identified. Here's what we think we can do to fix it. Far too often what the Conservative Party does is says, yeah, no, that's not a problem. The problem <laughs> is the budget. A, yeah, yeah, that, that's not a problem. Oh, you, you think climate change is a problem? No, it's not. And then the debate becomes, then the debate becomes, do you think climate change is a problem? And we're just like, no, 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 no. And then we miss out on that entire other side of the debate. We're like, you just lost you know, a generation and you right look, there. And you look like ideologues and foolish yeah. because you know and that it, way, and i think most people canadians would know like okay take climate change it's not a yes or no it's a like it's a super nuanced complicated scientific question that yes. deserves discussion at the very least and if you just are the people who say no 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 that's not it's nothing don't worry it's just fake news you lose those voters in an instant your your mindedness shuts them out exactly and, and i said this too by the way I said to a lot of people, I said, mark my words, there will come a day when conserv- the Conservative Party or the whatever the center-right political vehicle in this country is at that time will pay for our long-term refusal to do anything on climate change the same way we're still taking it in the teeth for our stance on gay marriage and abortion. It'll end up, it's going to not necessarily be the same thing, but if we don't come along with a plan soon, quick, and proper, it's going to be the same thing because it's going to be an issue that becomes increasingly more important for a lot of people. And they're going to say, yeah, we remember you guys. You're the people who said we shouldn't do anything on it for a while. And by the way, yes, I know Andrew Shear had a climate change plan. Uh, it was garbage. Sorry. <laughs> it was trash. Yeah. It was, and I, and I got to tell you one thing, and this, this here, this will be used against me someday. I have no doubt about it. At the end of the day, I can't understand for the life. I understand why, but I, it bothers me that conservatives magically, we, you know, we're all about the free market. We don't like big government red tape and intervention. Yet, whenever it comes time to draft up a climate plan, it's always about big regs and targeting certain things and telling people how they yeah, should I don't, do I don't get the, the carbon tax opposition. Like. So, but right, exactly. As opposed to having like, you know, a pricing mechanism very much what, you know, Brian Mulroney was able to do with uh, Bush when it came to acid rain, right? You basically, you put a price on pollution and then individual consumers and businesses figure out on their own the best yep. way, what it is to save on the costs. And I got to tell you the other thing too, by the way, so this is what made me laugh. Even Doug Ford's uh, climate plan that he originally released, they did a study on it and they found, yeah, this is actually going to cost way more and it's going to reduce emissions way less. The only difference is that with a carbon tax, the price is transparent and in your face. 
with the conservative plans, with the regs, the prices are still going up. It's just all hidden in the, in the, yeah. the price that all these companies have you. So I was like, it's actually a fundamentally very unconservative thing. Cause one, the lack of transparency is glaring, but I, two, it is, it is also a stupidly inefficient and ineffective and expensive way to do something all because, and this is a problem with our party as well. Like another thing, not to go into this, I can talk about this for freaking four days, but like Stephen Harper cutting the GST. Really dumb in great, hindsight. <laughs> great politics, garbage policy. And I, honestly, if I could say this, this is something that our party does a lot. We, oh yeah, sales taxes are regressive. That's true. There's rebates for a reason, but it is the most efficient way to collect tax money. And it's far better than taxing income. Yep. Why don't, see, that's a, why don't we have that discussion when it comes to taxes? Not just how much we tax people, but how we tax them, period. It's also Where, way easier to, to collect. Life. You can't avoid exactly. it. Exactly. There's a whole bunch of like knock-on benefits of that. Yeah, I that, think that Ken anyway. uh, from The Line did a really good article. I'll link it about the carbon tax and looking at conservative voters. And he said, yeah, you may lose one or two ridings, um, but you're going to gain a bunch more if you just go with the carbon tax because it's not yeah, as Yeah, guys, did you know? Because if, if we come out in favor of the carbon tax, what might happen is instead of getting 90% medicine hat, we'll only get 67%. <laughs> you know what I'm like? I, I wrote an article I just, I find on it this, makes actually. it so easy for the liberals to go, they're not for climate change. They're not, they don't believe in it just because the carbon tax. You, you say, you know what? Yeah, we're going to do the carbon tax. We're actually going to do it better. And this is the methods we're going to do it. Exactly. You've now changed the debate, the conversation completely, right? And, uh, I just like, man, do you guys really want to beat yourself silly over this? Like, is this something? Exactly. Like yeah. Okay. We got, no, we got to no start wrapping this up. Anthony, thank you no so worries. much for coming on. Is there anything else you want to tell people thinking about redirect them to Twitter handle business, whatever you got now's your time to shill for it. Sure. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Anthony double underscore Kosh K O C H. And uh, make sure to follow both of these guys on Twitter. And the podcast because I, I I like the energy here. I think you guys have got something good going on. So that's good. Yeah, I'm G as in Jeff. Connor. G as in Jeff, G not G as in Greg, not Greg. Jeff. Yeah, you're literally you're literally like I have had that happen so many times. Nobody you know, knows I'll how just, to spell. I'll, just, I'll just start calling you Costello. Does that work? That's Costello's fine. Costello's totally fine. Perfect. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to Unbound. If you enjoyed our conversation, the best way you can help us continue it is to give us a like and a five-star review wherever you get podcasts. It'd go a long way to help us grow our user base and include more and more people in our conversation. See you next time.